right, good morning. Good to see you all today. You know, I don't ever know if the children are trying to run to First Kids Worship or run away from the sermon. I don't ever quite know what they're, uh, what they're really trying to do there. Um, all right, uh, I have a, a really just kind of silly joke I want to open up with today. We have a passage of scripture that is uh, really kind of deep and it's a lot, so I thought it would be good to open up with this little joke to get us all in the mood. So the first joke I was going to say was that, and this was not the original one, was that I really wish that we'd get some rain. This dry weather is just really getting old. Amen? So uh, anyhow, my dog loves the mud, so she loves the mud outside. But anyway, here's the joke. A man uh, was driving his car, and he got pulled over by a police officer, and he had a rhinoceros in his car. Isn't that crazy? Hard to believe. I don't know how big the car was or how small the rhinoceros was. But he had a rhino in his car, and, and uh, the police officer said, Sir, are you aware that driving with a rhinoceros in your vehicle is illegal? And he said, he said really? No, I had no clue. I had, no, I didn't know that. And he said, well, it is illegal, and I'm going to let you off this time, but you have to promise me that you will take this rhinoceros straight to the zoo. Just go straight there, nowhere else. Just take it straight to the zoo. Will you promise me that? And the uh, man said, sure, I, will, I promise you I'll do that. So a week later, the police officer was in the same little part where he was sitting there catching people who were speeding, and, and he saw the same car driven by the same man uh, with the same rhinoceros in his vehicle, in his car. And so he pulled him over again, and he said, didn't I tell you to take this rhinoceros straight to the zoo? Did you not do that? He said, I sure did, officer. We had a great time, and this week we're going to the movies. I don't know. You'll be thinking about that all day, right? Yeah. You know, in our, in our current culture, we often view promises kind of like I think that man had did. We said, promise me to do something, and then you do it, but you don't really do it. We, we, we see promises as things that are nice, but ultimately promises can be broken. Ultimately, there's not really a big deal. We know the history of politics in our country. You know, a lot of people will run. They'll promise certain things to certain people, and then they'll never do it. Or maybe someone has promised you something sometime and they didn't do it. And we even have a phrase for it. We call it, what did they do? They what? They broke their promise, you know. And then if you break your promise, you just say, well, I'm sorry. You know, I won't do it again. So we don't see promises as being things really that have a lot of merit in our culture, quite honestly. But when we come across promises in the Bible, we view them as things that may or may not come about. But that's not how a biblical promise is. And we see, we're going to see that when God promises something, it's less of a hope, a hope that like I hope he does it right, and it's more of a guarantee that God will bring it about. Galatians chapter 3 today, we have a long passage. We're just going to start for this part in verse 23 as we read some of it. Paul says this, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that a faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, 
heirs according to promise. Heavenly Father, as we continue worshiping today, come across this, this passage of scripture that Paul has written where he really, Lord, as you know, and as we are about to find out, hammers home this idea that we can be saved in any other way but by faith through grace. Father, this is a, a hallmark tenet of the Christian faith. Yet it frequently comes up as needing to be defended because it need, people will always, Lord, as you know, try to find other ways to you. And so search our own hearts today, Lord, as we try to, to, to find those ways that we try to get your validation, your approval. We try to get made right with you any way other than through Jesus. That you would show us that if we just rest in your promises and rest in you and allow your Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us and to convict us, that is the life you've chosen for us to live. So, Father, we pray today that we would hear from you today and that my words today reflect your heart in the Bible. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you today three elements of God's promises by which we can be encouraged today. Three elements of God's promises by which we can be encouraged today. Number one, God's promises never change. Amen? God's promises never change. Verse 15, Paul writes this to the Galatians. He says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, covenants in the biblical time were not like our modern-day contracts. A modern-day contract, I mean, you do sign it and it's binding, but it's only binding to a point. You can break it, you can annul it, you can amend it, you can, you can change contracts, but a biblical covenant cannot be changed. It is a, an agreement that God has initiated with a man or, or men or people. In our case, it's with, the, it's with the, the, the New Testament church, through the covenant of the blood of Jesus. It is something that he has initiated that is lifelong, is eternal. It will never end. It can't be tweaked, it can't be deleted, it can't be amended. So when God makes a promise, he's making a covenant many times with us. And this is an important distinction because Paul is referring to the covenant that God had with Israel that he made through Abraham way back in Genesis, early part of Genesis. And he explains an element of this covenant that the Jews had overlooked. Look at verse 16. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham... And to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul's referring to, to Genesis 13, where God had promised to, to Abraham and his offspring the land, and they would bless everybody through his offspring. But he makes this interesting grammatical comment that offspring is singular. And as it's one person, not multitude of people. The promise was made that a singular offspring would then allow all others to come into faith. That being Jesus Christ. It wasn't just that the Jews would lead people to faith. It would be that Christ would lead people to salvation. And this would make a lot of the Jews recoil in disturbance. So then he says in verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, 
does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So God gave Moses the law. When he went on the mountain and gave him the Ten Commandments, that took place 430 years after God reached out to Abraham and said, Abraham, come follow me, and I'm going to uh, make your descendants like the, like the sands on the seashore, and all the nations will be blessed through you, which they were through Christ. This came before the law. In other words, Moses, the law that he received from God, the Ten Commandments, are not more binding than the promise God gave to Abraham. See, what the Jews were saying was, you can be a Christian, you can follow Christ, you can be saved, but you have to be Jewish first. You have to do all these laws. You got to become a Jew in order to become a believer. And Paul says, no, no, no. The promise to Abraham was made 400 years before there even was a, a nation of Jews that had the law. So the, the, the promise, the covenant came first. So he's going back into some history. He says in verse 18, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer by promise that God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul says, no, you don't have to become a Jewish to become a Christian. That would be changing the promise God made at the very beginning of all this years ago. It would change the grace of God, and that would change how people are made right with God. Sometimes I believe in our own life that, there, that we believe that there are things we can do to avoid God's promises in our lives. I feel like we think there's things we can do to nullify God's promises in our life. If you're, if you're a child of God, if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you've turned from your sins and placed your faith in him, there is nothing you can do to be taken out of that covenant God has given you. Now, it's possible that you may not be a child of God. It's possible that you may not be saved. But if you know him, Scripture says that he will never forsake you. He will never turn his back on you. And a big portion of God's grace is that his promise never changes. His promise isn't based on how we live our life. He didn't say, well, you know, you did right today, Charlie, so I'm with you. But tomorrow you might not do well, so I'm not going to be with you. That's not grace. That's not the covenant we have with God. And so God's promises never change. We need to understand that today. Secondly, God's promises never contradict. God's promises never contradict. So we get into verse 19, and this is the standard uh, exception or the response that Paul would hear from the people. Well, why then, verse 19, why then the law? Well, well, then what's so great about the law? Why did God give us the law if it doesn't really mean anything? Is that what you're saying, Paul? He says, no, the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that being Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place, talking about the law, through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. He says that Moses received the, the law through angels, but, God, but, but Abraham received the covenant through God himself. And he says the purpose of giving the Ten Commandments and the law in the first place is to let others know what is right and what is wrong. That's why he says it's a transgression. See, if I get in my car and drive 70 in a 30, I've broken the law. I might not know the speed limit, but I've broken the law. But if I get in my car and drive 70 in a 30 and I know the speed limit's 30, then that's a transgression. 
So he's making, he's making a point here. There's sin, but then there's transgressions. And a transgression biblically means you knew you were doing wrong. That's, you can sin and have no idea it's wrong, but if you transgress it, you know you've done wrong. That's what he says. It was added so that people would know what their transgressions were. The Ten Commandments and the law is great and it's wonderful because it tells us what is wrong. It tells us what is right. How do we know what is right and wrong? How do we know that it's, that it's right to not steal, that it's, it's wrong to bear false witness? All these things, we know it because God has told us. Furthermore, Paul mentions and that Moses received it from angels, but Abraham received it from God himself. So he's elevating the Abrahamic covenant, which points toward Jesus as actually being higher and more important than even the law of Moses. So then he says in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, does it, does it contradict? And he says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He says, if there was something that God can give you that says, if you do this, you'll be saved, then you could do it. But that's not what he's, but we can't do that which is why he's given us Jesus. So he says in verse 22 that the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So he restates this case of the law, the Ten Commandments had a purpose. It let people know what sin is. But that doing the law is not the way to be saved. That's what the Jews thought. They took the Bible that said, we know what is right and wrong, and if we do the Bible, we'll be saved. And Paul says, no. The Bible tells you what is right and wrong, but you're saved through faith in Jesus Christ, not by doing anything. God's promises, in this case, the promise of salvation through faith, they never contradict his word that may have said elsewhere. And I want to make a, a connection to just our modern-day believers with this passage here. We live in a culture that is very quick to claim specific Bible verses for certain situations. We can surf online and we can see all sorts of Bible passages and things. We, oh, I like that and we'll share that or we'll post that and we'll see it. But we have to be careful in doing that because for many reasons, most American Christians are very bad at interpreting what Scripture actually means at knowing what Scripture actually means. I saw something just the other day and read something the other day, a biblical insight from some uh, well-known book and, and Christian leadership book. And it said that Moses uh, did a great job in ri rising up um, Joshua to take his place. And you can see how Joshua was successful. And they said, but then Joshua didn't ri raise up any leaders, and so then in the book of Judges, everything fell apart. And so Joshua was a horrible person, didn't invest in anybody's life, didn't a horrible leader, didn't invest in the leaders, and so invest in leaders. Well, that's an interesting insight. The problem is the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that Joshua did not invest in any leaders. Now, if it had said, hey, Joshua never invested in any leaders, this is why the, the time of the judges was so chaotic, we could do it. But we have to be careful in not getting our theology from what the Bible does not say. We get our theology from what the Bible says. It's a big, big distinction. 
We can't read into something in some blank space in the Bible and say, oh, well, this means that. No, no, no. We can only know what it says by what it says. We can't just assume. How do we not know that Joshua didn't try to train 100 men and they all turned from it? We have no idea the situation. Now, it sounds good. It preaches well, but it might not be true. God's promises will never contradict, but many times we believe contradictory statements because we don't know how to interpret Scripture. We don't know our Bibles enough. We see something that looks good, and we, we claim it, and we post it, and then it doesn't come true, and we get upset, and we blame God about something that he never promised us in the first place. His promises never change. His promises never contradict we need to be thankful, I think, many times when God doesn't give us the things we want, the things we claim. You know, my little two-year-old boy that was slowly creeping on stage, if you saw him, he was trying to do this little number where he was dancing and he was kind of shimmying over here and he would get on stage if we let him. So he loves chocolate. He loves candy bars. And he would eat as many as I let him have. He would eat as many suckers as, as many, I would let him have. He goes in the, in the office in the week, and he goes to the daycare, and they give him suckers all week long. He'd, he'd have three or four if you let him, right? He'd have ten candy bars if you let him. But that's not good for him. What would happen? He would get a big stomachache, wouldn't he? Many times, God gives us grace when he doesn't give us things that we think we need, but we don't need. And he says, you don't want that. It might taste good now, but later you're going to be paying for it. And when God doesn't give us what we want, it is his grace. We need to think of God as a loving father that way. It's by his grace that he doesn't give them to us. So God's promises never change, and they never contradict if we think they do in some way. Number three, finally, God's promises never discriminate. They never discriminate. What he says in verse 23. Now, before faith came, that being Jesus, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, this word that's been translated guardian, there really is no English equivalent out of the Greek. And so when that happens sometimes, different translators will try to use different words to get the point across. It's been, uh, some, some translations will, um, they will translate it as schoolmaster or a disciplinarian or things like this. But the literal translation of this word guardian is the word boy leader, B-O-Y leader, like a leader of boys. I guess the closest thing we would have to it would maybe be like a, like a boy scout you know, troop or something like that or a leader. This was a person in the Jewish society who wasn't the father, wasn't related to them, that was entrusted with the moral supervision of the child. Sometimes I like to get a boy leader on John David sometimes, you know, and just follow him around. But this boy leader could also exercise discipline, and he always walked around with a rod in his hand. That's what he did. And so when the child would kind of do something he shouldn't do, he's back in line. That was what the boy leader did. Now, that would never happen in our current culture, but that's what it was in the biblical way. What, what he's saying is that the law, God's word, the Ten Commandments, it acts as our disciplinarian. It acted as our disciplinarian. We knew that if we went over here and if we did this, the law says, nope, you can't do that. Get back in line. Well, I want to go steal this over here. And God's word says, no, get back in line. That's not right. 
and it keeps us on the rail, so to speak. It kicks us back in line, morally speaking. Why, that's why if you have a society that may not even be a Christian society, but if their standard is the Ten Commandments, it's going to be a healthy society because it keeps people in line. It keeps morality going. Look what he says in verse 25. But now that faith has come, faith in Jesus, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, he's not saying that the, that the law is not important for us and we shouldn't read it. and We shouldn't, you know, put our lives by the Ten Commandments. He's saying that verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you, all, you are all sons of God through faith. So we don't have to have, we have it, we don't have to have the Bible telling us what's right and wrong anymore. If you know Jesus, you have God himself, the Holy Spirit in your life, in your heart, convicting you constantly of what is right and wrong. So you know now, I don't need to do this because the Holy Spirit is telling you, no, that is not right. That is not being conformed to the image of Christ. And we have the law that acts like the guardian, but he says we don't need it because we have what, something that's better than the word of God. We have Jesus Christ inside living in us. How often do we forget that? Then he says here in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. So he's transitioning. He's like, and you all are Christians, and you all have this. You don't need to be held captive by some moralism telling you you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to do this to be saved. You, all you need is Jesus, and he will guide you. Yes, the law is good, but you have Jesus, and that's what's important. And then he says, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is another verse that often gets, I think, wrongly interpreted. What's he saying? He's saying in the body of Christ, we are all one. And our primary identity as Christians is a Christian. That is our identity. We are in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. See, the New Testament church was made up of Jews and Greeks. But he says, you might be a Jew, you might be a Greek, but first you're a Christian. It's, so there's no room for any type of interracial prejudice in the body of Christ. That's what he's saying. And then he says there's neither slave nor free. So there's no place for any social prejudice in the body of Christ. Then he says there's no male or female. It's not that when we become Christian we don't, we don't have a, a, a gender or a sex anymore. We're still who God created us to be. He says there's no room for discrimination because of how you're born and your anatomy. Being in Christ doesn't mean we quit being a certain race or a certain social status or a certain sex. But those identities take a back seat to being in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is first and foremost our identity over all. See, the, the church of God can take people from all walks of life and put them all together. We can look different. We can act different. We can speak different. We can be from different houses and families and socioeconomic settings and all sorts of things. But we all come together. We all worship together. We can all sing God's praises together because we all have the same Savior. Amen. We all have the same Lord. We are one in Jesus. So whatever your background is, is great. But it's second place when it comes to your allegiance with Jesus Christ. And that's what he's trying to get to the Galatians. That's what he's trying to say. God's promises do not discriminate. The gospel is for all people. Amen. 
doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, what you look like. It's for all people. The same gospel that can save me can save your neighbor across the street, can save your coworker who hates God, can save them if they turn to him. And then he says in verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If we're truly in Christ, then we're all Abraham's, he says. We are heirs to the kingdom. Why? Because God promised it. There's a pastor, famous pastor, his name is G. Campbell Morgan, when he was young. When, you know, when you're a young pastor in your 20s or something like this, you, know, you kind of think you know everything. And when you get older, you realize you don't know anything. That's kind of how it works in all facets of life, especially even in the ministry. You kind of think you know it all. I kind of think you got it all figured out. And I'm sure I was that way, you know. And you may still think I'm that way now. I don't know. But anyhow, I probably was when I was certainly in the 20s. So this guy, what he would do, part of his assignment as a young pastor with this organization is he would go and he would read the Bible to these elderly senior adult ladies who couldn't read anymore. And he would just go and just read them the Bible. And these are people who probably had heard the Bible for longer years than he'd been alive. And he, he was reading the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And he reads it and he says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. And he said, uh, Pastor Morgan said, isn't that a wonderful promise? And one of the ladies said, young man, that is not a promise. That is a fact. <laughs> that is a fact. You know, I did this in the first service, and I did it, and it came off the cuff. I'm doing it again. I, look, I wait for the day in a few months where I can come up to this pew, and I can just rip off this piece of tape. Amen. Because there are, there are, there, there we go. Go ahead and clap for it. Because there are people in our community, in our city, who need to know that God's promises are facts. They need to know the gospel. We need to pack them in here when we're able to do that. And I hope that for Easter service, we have two, three, even four services we can to get people in here. We, nobody, did you go to Easter last year? I didn't go to Easter last year. Actually, I did. Me and my family sat right there on the front row alone and watched it i look forward to the day where we could have the place packed there are people everywhere that are trying to live like the galatians trying to earn their way to god trying to do what they can to god and they don't know that god's promise that jesus loves them and and came and died for them and took their sins on the cross they don't know that that is a fact and that god promises it and it's up to us to bring them here so they can hear it it's us to tell them in the streets so they can hear it. So one day, two, one day also they can come and they can sit in this pew and they can worship the Jesus who saved them. Heavenly Father, as we close our, our time together today, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done for us, Father. We thank you that we can come in here worship today and we thank and we, and we we thank you for those who are still home watching who don't feel comfortable being here we understand that we, and we're thankful for the safety you give us although we look forward to those days in the near future we will be able to go into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in to your house to hear the life-changing promise and fact of the gospel. It says, if you believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. 
Lord, for those of us in here that know you, let's not get sidetracked and live like we're not saved. Let's not get sidetracked and live like we don't believe in the promises you've given us. The same grace that saved us can enable us to live a life. The same Jesus that died from the cross, his spirit, you are in our own hearts guiding us. That you would guide us. If there's one in here that's never placed their faith today in Jesus Christ, has never turned from their sins and said, yes, I believe in you and you are now my Lord and Savior, they would make that decision today. Father, we thank you for, for what you've given us in our lives. And we pray as we leave here today, we'll never take for granted your promises, your promises that never change, they never contradict, and that they are for all people everywhere. Because your word says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we all need a Savior. Lord, we love you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.